0: This podcast is supported by Amber Road, the world's leading provider of on-demand global trade management software and solutions. Amber Road's single on-demand platform automates and streamlines processes for import, export, global logistics, foreign trade zones, and trade agreement management. By helping organizations comply with country-specific trade regulations, as well as plan, execute, and track global trade, Amber Road enables goods to flow unimpeded across international borders in the most efficient, compliant, and profitable way. And now, on to the podcast. Which countries are going to shake up global supply chains over the next 12 to 18 months? A new report has some answers. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Christian Science Monitor's Monitor Global Outlook report focuses on some 75 so-called emerging or frontier markets and evaluates the political, economic, environmental, and labor risks presented by each one. This year's Security and Supply Chain Risk Outlook contains some expected observations as well as a few surprises. China, for example, which has already seen a steep rise in manufacturing labor expense, could be in for another 20% rise in supply chain costs. That's likely to trigger another exodus of manufacturers to countries with cheaper labor. But where will they go? Who has the political stability and infrastructure to support manufacturing on the scale that China has achieved over the past two decades? And which countries should be avoided outright? Joining me today is Joe Schatz, supply chain specialist for the Monitor Global Outlook Report. He tells us where the hot spots are likely to be in the coming months. So here is my conversation with Joe Schatz. Joe Schatz, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Thanks for being with us to talk about the uh, latest MGO uh, Monitor Global Outlook Supply Chain Report. What are some of the high points in terms of uh, the political aspect of the report? What are the hot spots that you identified this time around?
1: Right. Well, Monitor Global Outlook really focuses on the 75 or so countries designated as, emer- as emerging or frontier markets, but we also work with Specialists in a lot of other countries around the world connected with Christian Science Monitor, which has also been providing you know broader coverage for about 100 years. And um, you know, in this supply chain um, report, we focused particularly on political, um, economic, and um, you know, labor, environmental risks around the world uh, to companies. And we came up with um, it's 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 a it runs a gamut. You know, in, in several countries, you see risks rising. You see you know consumer electronic companies. Operating in China, seeing the 20% increase in in supply chain costs. Um, in Indonesia, you see a lot of uh, kind of populist politics leading up to their presidential election this week, um, resulting in a lot of kind of investor unfriendly regulations, particularly in the oil and gas sector. On the other side of the equation, um, in countries like ba- Bangladesh, for instance, um, there's been a lot of political turmoil. Um, but you actually see garment, uh, and it's it's obviously the, the second biggest garment exporter in the world. Despite the political turmoil you see a lot of Western companies going back in now to Bangladesh and you see kind of a more complicated scenario there um, with uh, the big issue being um, safety fixes upgrading factories there and then in Africa you have a mix you have uh, you know Kenya and Nigeria where you've seen a lot of bad headlines recently um, you know in Kenya um, you know the 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 in Nigeria the Boko Haram insurgency and in Kenya a lot of terrorist attacks um, yet you see Basically, our sources on the ground telling us that they're not changing their plans, that the risks for them, supply chain risks, haven't really changed. Whereas down in South Africa, you have a situation where growing inequality and uh, growing labor movement um, has meant, has meant um, a lot of disruption, um, particularly in, like, for instance, the platinum industry. And we're expecting to see a lot more of that in the coming year. So it's a, it's a mix across the world right now.
0: Let me take you back to talk about China for a moment. You said the supply chain costs in China could rise twenty percent. Well, they've already risen quite a bit in the last several years. What mm-hmm. would be the reason for an additional twenty percent rise?
1: Uh, we're seeing a, kind of an increased focus on um, on online shopping, which has resulted in a growing demand for warehouses, big big warehouses, which is which is uh, costing companies more money. And again, some of the same some of the same things that you've already been talking that you just mentioned, you know, r- rising wages and other. Um, other issues like that are also just, you know, propelling the costs further up.
0: Also, the uh, the emergence of Alibaba as a uh, as an Internet uh, e-commerce force lately we've been reading about, I wonder if that has an impact on trade with China and what that might mean to uh, Chinese supply chains.
1: I think that's a great question, and I, th- I think it will. And um, I think, you know, they, they announced in January that they're investing about $16 billion to build a a logistics ne- uh, network uh, capable of supporting online sales of about 1.6 trillion dollars, I think, and so that's a big thing to watch.
0: I hear elsewhere that corruption in China remains a big problem. Would you agree, and how might that impact on supply chains?
1: Um, I think that's uh, I, th- I agree, and I think that's what we found as well. Our sources are saying I think that's an ongoing. Uh, that's that's been a big issue for for years, as you and your your listeners know, and I think that that will continue to be a huge issue in China. Corruption.
0: And intellectual uh, property protection also remains uh, kind of a dicey issue there, too, does it not?
1: It does. And I think that, you know, the, the U.S., the Obama administration has been, you know, continually focused on that when it comes to China with IPR protections. And um, I think it's a, a mixed bag in terms of what they've been able to accomplish. Um, probably most most U.S. companies would say they haven't been able to accomplish much at all. Um, and so that that's a huge issue for, for U.S. companies. That has been for years. And, again, I, we're not seeing much change on that.
0: Do you think we'll continue to see political tensions between the U.S. and China? There are so many issues arising. One is China's assertion over dominance of the South China Sea. Um, another is the continuing argument over currency. Um, right. Currency issues. Will these continue to be hot issues uh, between the two countries in the next year or two?
1: Absolutely. I think the currency issue. I mean, the currency issue kind of waxes and wanes a bit, um, depending on. What's happening in China, and also what's happening politically in the U.S. You know, and with an election, with midterm election, you could see an increased focus on that and the U.S. side. I think the South China Sea issue is particularly interesting when you look at a country like, for instance, Vietnam. Regionally, when you look at a country like Vietnam, um, where we've been doing a lot of coverage, and you see um, the the tensions that have arisen from the dispute between China and Vietnam um, about the islands, the the oil rig, the Chinese oil rig placed in the islands of Vietnam. Um, you've seen a lot of Chinese, uh, companies targeted in Vietnam, you know, violently targeted, but also a lot of other companies that were kind of painted as Chinese, but aren't Chinese, you know, Singaporean companies, uh, then, you know, obviously Taiwanese companies have also fallen under that rubric. And so that's caused a lot of problems, um, more broadly, not just for Chinese companies, but for, um, Asian companies more broadly operating in Vietnam now we're expecting that's probably going to decrease a bit as the as the, as the, sorry excuse me as the Vietnamese government kind of cracks down on that a bit, but uh, you know there's politics at play there as well and so I think getting back to your point, I think the South China Sea tensions um, do have a particular there's a potential to affect business throughout the Southeast Asia region there.
0: As rising costs in China drive manufacturers out of that country in search Mm -hmm. of lower wage or lower cost labor countries, are Indonesia, Vietnam and even Malaysia prepared to take on some of that capacity or do they just not have the infrastructure that would allow them to support what's been going on on that scale in China?
1: I think it probably depends on the industry. Um, I think you know, for for instance, I, the the low the low scale stuff, the, the garment industry. You know, they've done they've moved into Bangladesh, they've moved into Vietnam, Cambodia, other companies, and done quite well. I think you're right. I think probably some of the Malaysia, Indonesia may, and certain sectors may not be ready to 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 deal with some of that investment. Um, but I think that remains to be seen.
0: Now, what about Myanmar? I know you uh, know quite a bit yeah. about that. Uh, yeah. The Gap recently announced that it would be producing clothing there for the first time. Sure. Um, and yet, at the very same moment, Myanmar is on the verge or is already imposing Sharia law, which is causing human rights concerns and a, a lot of problems that might bounce back on apparel manufacturers in terms of brand reputation. What's going on there and how the, how might that affect companies that would like to source in Myanmar?
1: Uh, right. Well, on the, on the religious issue, basically what you're seeing um, is, you know, it's a Buddhist majority country and you have... Um, uh, a fairly small Muslim minority. That's that's. Um, it's, it's a complicated situation. You have some folks in the western part of the country um, who are under particular persecution right now. You know, there's a lot of violence against the Rohingya minority, Muslim minority, and uh, they're basically restricted by the government from from moving a lot of places, from getting health services, and that's creating a big uh, reputational risk for. Pretty much everybody doing business with Myanmar right now. Companies, governments, it's causing, making things really awkward for the U.S. government and some European governments that um, just recently re engaged with the country. And you're seeing again more broadly kind of anti Muslim sentiment across the country, um, which is also. Um, affecting business, because uh, in the western part of the country, as I just mentioned, you have, that's where a lot of the oil and gas business is. And so you could see, you could see some big reputational and also logistical risks, um, for oil and gas companies that are moving into Myanmar if they're doing business in those areas. You know, you could easily see situations where, you know, violence flares up and they have to, you know, change their, change their way of doing business. But throughout the rest of the country, there's this, this anti-Muslim sentiment has actually it's emerged in some unlikely places recently. Unilever, they were, you know, they, they, were big, they have a big presence throughout Myanmar and that some pictures were taken showing that uh, some of their advertising had actually been hijacked by some of the anti-Muslim extremists. They had been putting their stickers on the, on the Unilever sign. So that caused a big problem for Unilever, obviously. And so that, that's, you know, it's affecting business throughout the country. I think, and you mentioned the gap. More broadly, you're, you're beginning to see U.S. companies come into Myanmar now with the, with the drop, you know, since sanctions that have been in place for the better part of the last generation have been dropped since Myanmar, you know, went democratic essentially three years ago. Um, you've been seeing increasing interest from Western companies. But Gap was one of the first American companies, along with Coke, that has gone in there, but there's still big, big, big reputational um, issues, not just with the anti-Muslim sentiment, but also uh, with the fact that the you know the government remains largely controlled by the military, if not in name behind the scenes. And there's huge issues around human rights and life still out there.
0: So it might have been a, a problem of timing on the GAPS part to make the announcement when it did, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. its uh, I mean, they there's really kind of two parallel narratives happening in Myanmar right now. There's, you know, there's dramatic reforms from where they were four years ago yet at the same time there's a lot of fear that they're back that already a process of backsliding has begun and so it's kind of it's really it's difficult to, it can be difficult to to make sense of for a lot of businesses a lot of governments i think because again on one hand things are sort of getting better on the other hand things are in some parts of the country in certain areas are getting worse
0: now, Bangladesh, on the other hand, you're suggesting that risk might be going down. Does this mean that manufacturers are successfully addressing the issue of labor conditions and working conditions in bangladesh?
1: right it's a, that, that, it, Bangladesh is a really interesting case because um last year uh, you know in Jan- this past January, they had very contentious elections where they they essentially turned into a one you know one sided election where the the opposition boycotted it, and the ruling party went on to win and um in the run up to that election you had months and months of of strikes and political turmoil a lot of violence um and it really affected supply chains again you know bangladesh is the the second biggest exp- uh, garment export sector in the world and you had a lot of you know literally trucks could not move you know outside the outside the capital city and you had big problems there now that's you know now that the elections over things have quieted down a bit that political risk seems to have; it appears to be gone for the moment. And again, companies like JCPenney and Walmart, which had stopped their orders from Bangladesh, have actually started them again. So they're 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 back in. But um, the more complicated question is on the again on sort of the safety improvements. Last year, you had the Rana Plaza collapse, which was the biggest industrial you know accident disaster in Bangladesh's history yet, more than 1,100 people dying. And as a result, since then, you've had. Various efforts, kind of competing effort, to force upgrades in the factories and the factory conditions, the working conditions. And you've had one U.S.-led effort to inspect factories, upgrade them, and another kind of European-led effort. And the European-led effort has been a bit more stringent than the U.S.-led effort. But the bottom line is that you have about 3,500 factories right now that are undergoing inspections, and. You, a lot of them are being, you know they're being fixed they're being upgraded which is going to help um, which is going to help in a lot of ways it's going to help obviously the the, the the process you know the safety standards it's going to help reputational it's going to lower reputational risks for for foreign companies working there. The complication is that there's you know our sources there say that there are about a thousand other factories additional factories beyond those thirty five hundred that are kind of flying below the radar and that usually get subtracted sub sorry subcontracted work from those big factories and they're not really being they don't follow you know the the inspectors aren't going those places so you still have a big reputational risk with those with those factories, potentially. And so, you know, the, the political risks have subsided in Bangladesh, and so that, that's not as big a deal right now. But the safety compliance issue is still kind of an ongoing... It's improving, but it's an ongoing ongoing issue that we're watching.
0: I want to take a moment for a message from Amber Road. Amber Road would like to remind you to check out their new brief featuring research from Gartner entitled Maximize Supplier Collaboration and Procurement Performance. A multitude of forces drives today's need for greater inbound supply chain visibility and improved supplier collaboration. Gartner research found that organizations that are not using supplier portals to connect trading partners lack the visibility to leverage opportunities to collaborate. This research brief investigates how supplier portals generate cost savings through automation and provides expert recommendations on how to leverage portals to increase trading partner collaboration and reduce supplier risk. It also contains a case study on how Leggett and Platt used Amber Road's supplier portal solution to improve visibility over origin and supplier operations, reduce cycle times, streamline broker operations, and reduce broker fees. You may download and view the research brief from Amber Road's website, www.amberroad.com. And now, back to the podcast. So are you pretty positive on India, another nation that just underwent a big election, uh, has always had infrastructure issues and bureaucracy issues and regulatory issues that stand in the way of it really kind of stepping up and competing with China as sure. an effective manufacturing source uh, for global supply chains. What do you think about India?
1: Well, India, it looks like we're seeing, you know, from from the folks we talked to on the ground, the the kind of uncertainty of the last several months is, is, is going down considerably now that the Modi government has taken over you know their their reputation is decidedly pro-business except on the issue of allowing foreign retailers in on some in some respects they um, are, are a bit reluctant on that part you know that you've seen some major retailers who have been trying to go into India over the last few years have seen have encountered a lot of problems that have pulled back their their investment and that may not Change considerably, but on other issues like taxes, corporate taxes, it looks like it's a it's you know kind of the uncertainty is is, is getting lower and lower about India, and there's a lot of optimism in business circles about it, the fact that make it may get, you know make it easier to do business and supply chain issues you know risks may may be getting lower in India now.
0: Can we move over move over to the Middle East for a moment? Uh, sure. I wonder if some of the recent uh, developments and strife in Iraq. Came after the preparation of this report, and whether that would cause you to reevaluate your uh, your uh, picture of the Middle East as a pl- as a stable place for trade right now.
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I think it did. Yeah, pretty much everything happened after after this went to press. But I think you know some of the big some of the big issues that we looked at, particularly you know Iran preparing for new investment. you know, with the kind of the thaw in rela- or the seeming thaw in relations between the U.S. In particular and, particular, Iran. And who you know the, you you could see you know that with that happening you know there's a lot of optimism about um, investment in Iran right now and the potential for investment in Iran. Obviously, this the situation that's happening now right in Syria and Iraq could it's 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 hard to say how that would affect that right now. And in the United Arab Emirates, for instance, we're looking. One of our headlines was um, kind of looking at the boom ahead for security firms as a growing demand for Western security private security firms in the UAE. Um, it's it's hard to tell at this point how how the kind of ongoing situation in Iraq would affect a lot of those a lot of those issues.
0: Well, it seems like a, a booming yeah, demand I, I would, for, I, <laughs> a booming demand for security firms probably means not much demand for anything else. <laughs> right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, that, that could be. Yeah, but I, I would hesitate to make predictions about uh, how exactly it would.
0: It would affect things right now. Now, um, you, Russia and Ukraine, your report uh, pretty much indicates that Russia has uh, plummeted to the bottom right. of, the, of the list of uh, viable places and economies right now because of Putin's policies. And, of course, Ukraine is just so much uh, uh, so uncertain. And yet at the same time, its migration toward the West and the EU seem like a positive thing. So on balance, how do you, uh, first of all, assess the situation in Ukraine from a uh, global supply chain standpoint?
1: Yeah, I think you just nailed it with, with Ukraine. I think there's there's a lot of uncertainty, yet also as they, you know, just even in the last few weeks, as they grow closer to the EU and the West, that that's undoubtedly a good thing for, it's going to be viewed as a good thing by a lot of Western firms and increase their confidence in, in doing business over there and, and, and supply chain, and kind of lowering supply chain risks in, in Ukraine. But again, there's huge, huge uncertainty right now, and as you mentioned with Russia, there. Uh, there was an Ernst & Young survey, which I think had them as number six in the world, ranked number six as investment, you know, for investment potential among, you know, Western investors, and they've, they've plummeted now <laughs> to last on the list. Again, I, as you said, there may be a silver lining for Ukraine, but I think that the uncertainty of the situation and exactly how, you know, sanctions and and the, the what, what the the U.S. and the EU response and the tension between the EU response and the U.S. response is going to affect Russia remains unclear right now.
0: You also bring up uh, in your report the issue of conflict minerals, uh, which is um, – we've seen some setback in the attempts of the SEC here to to require companies to divulge the conflict mineral uh, content of their products. Will this continue to be a major issue, however, and how successful are companies so far in complying with the Conflict Minerals rule?
1: The first reporting deadline was June 2nd. These new regulations were part of the Dodd-Frank Act, the, you know, the Wall Street bill that, that was passed into law a few years ago. And yeah. um, the first reporting deadline was June 2nd, and we saw about, I think, close to 1,300 companies. The likes of Apple, Google, Ford, HP—you know—filing extensive documentation. But it's a, it comes at a, it's a big cost. Um, there are estimates. You know, SEC, I think, estimates that the the whole effort just to document all this has cost a few billion dollars. And so I think that's going to be a continuing. It's definitely going to be continuing cost. You know, an increased cost for companies and a kind of a complicated thing to. It's also, you know when you're when you're sourcing minerals from that that part of the world, it's it's going to be complicated to get good you know, reliable information, which makes for a big reputational risk for companies. We found that most companies are putting the onus of, you know, of confirming that those minerals are, you know, responsibly acquired onto the smelters that buy the raw materials in in Democratic Republic of Congo and the surrounding countries. So that, you know, there's always going to be questions there about how reliable is that information. But I think it, the, the initial, from what we've seen, the initial data coming in that, you know, companies are complying there's a lot of information coming in it is a costly endeavor but there seems to be some there's seems to be seems to be some optimism about how it's going so far
0: and some successes we just hear the other day that Intel has declared itself conflict mineral free so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i guess yeah. there's some uh, possibility there of course at the same time do we not hear of the EU contemplating its own conflict minerals rules
1: that's something i haven't uh, i haven't delved into yet but that uh, i'm sure that'll add to the
0: situation. Yeah, other countries will do the same same thing, you know, yeah. and whether they'll be the exact same kind of rules or companies will have to conform to an entirely different set of regulations or right. reporting rules. Right, right. Rarely does it seem like everyone in the world agrees on the same, uh, same right, types of controls. Right, right, exactly.
1: And I imagine that would make things very difficult for an international company going in there. Or just add, add a different layer, you know, another layer of complexity to the reporting requirements.
0: Are there other products out there that you think might become subjected to some kind of regulation other than these, you know, these four War, Conflict Minerals, um, Conflict Diamonds has also been a big deal. But I'm thinking also of of cotton with child labor in Uzbekistan. Mm -hmm. And I mean, do you see any, you know, any real hot, hot subjects in terms of products around the world uh, coming up?
1: That's a great question. To, to be honest, I, I, beyond, those, beyond the ones you, you mentioned and these four, I, 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 I'm not sure on that one.
0: So no, nothing really on yeah, the horizon that we can see. Moment, no. Yeah, not yet. Although I'm sure we'll be surprised. There's always surprises Absolutely. out there. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So where should supply chain executives be looking? Uh, what, are, what are some of the takeaways from this report that you really think is, are, are important to keep in mind in terms mm-hmm. of preparing for supply chain risk and uh, right. the, the situation coming in the next year or two?
1: I think one of the main takeaways is that the you know you have to look kind of beyond the the headlines, and I think that's that's one of the things that NGO um, since we began um, late last year has really been good at, for instance, in Kenya and Nigeria, you hear you see a lot of big terrorism related problems insurgency problems, yet we're finding that companies on the ground are not finding that they're terribly affected by these issues, and they're still pretty confident in in relatively low you know supply chain risks in those countries. You know that could change at any moment, obviously. But uh, you, you know they, the the headlines don't necessarily correspond with what we're hearing from companies on the ground. At the same time, in you know, in like I mentioned, in South Africa, a country that's that's you know traditionally been you know Nigeria is now the biggest African economy. South Africa was for for many years, but in South Africa, you're seeing it trad- traditionally be the strongest African economy. Now you're seeing a lot of kind of long Long-term worry about inequality and kind of the social, these social and economic trends. And you know, politically it's stable, but this inequality is really—it's giving rise to a growing, you know, a, a strong labor movement. Um, you know, the, the ruling African National Congress has, has splintered, and you have kind of a strong populist segment really pushing now for um, for efforts to address inequality, and that's going to have a big impact on supply chains. Again, there was a four-month platinum industry strike that was only recent only resolved a few weeks ago, and I think you're going to see what we 're hearing is that you're going to see those kind of dynamics in a lot of other industries as well. The dynamics are complex in each of these companies you know beyond the headline in Asia, uh, as I mentioned you know India there seems to be a lot of optimism now that risks are, re- are reduced in on the, on the supply chain side in India. Indonesia is a big question mark i don't think we went into Indonesia the um you know, the oil and gas industry there, there's a lot of worry that new restrictions on foreign investment in the oil and gas sector is going to, to really hamper foreign investment there. Yet, it, it doesn't apply to the pharmaceutical sector. And so, there's a, you know, it's a mixed bag there. We'll have a new administration there any day now. And whether they follow the lead of the previous administration or whether, you know, the end of the election will mean the end of populist politics, you know, not quite clear yet. And so, there's a lot, a
0: lot to watch. A lot to watch, a lot of things on the plate of supply chain, global supply chain managers around the world. And this MGO supply chain report is an extremely valuable resource for uh, companies looking to understand what's going on in the world. Joe Schatz, thank you very much for being with us, bringing us up to date on the latest report. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, thank you very much. It was my pleasure.
0: We'd like to thank Amber Road for sponsoring this podcast. Amber Road solutions use a combination of enterprise-class software, intelligent trade content, and a global trade network that connects supply chain participants such as importers, exporters, freight forwarders, customs brokers, and transportation carriers. To learn more, please visit www.amberroad.com or email solutions at amberroad.com. That was my conversation with Joe Schatz of the Monitor Global Outlook. Hope you enjoyed the show. Check out our show notes for a link to the new MGO report. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.